going to try to give a wider view of why the Israelites are in Babylon. And it goes back pretty far. Um, I mean, obviously it goes back in the mind of God in eternity past, so it's a pretty old thing. But uh, specifically, uh, when Moses is delivering his farewell uh, sermon to the people of God in the book of Deuteronomy, that's Moses right before he's about to die, the people are about to enter the promised land, and he's telling them again, keep the law, keep the law, love God with your whole heart, with your whole mind, love one another as yourselves. This is the whole law. We're often, you hear this phrase um, in, in his sermon, both the blessings and the curses. And so the law uh, of God was not just the good things that happened could happen because you followed God, but also the things that would happen if, if the people did not. And so one of the curses at the very end in Deuteronomy chapter 28 is the curse of deportation. Um, that this was, in fact, prophesied by Moses right at the beginning. Um, so I'm going to read just bits and pieces. Chapter 28 is pretty long. You're welcome for not reading the whole thing to you. Um, Deuteronomy 28 and 15, though, says, But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall you be in the city, and cursed shall you be in the field. Cursed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Cursed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground, the increase of your herds and the young of the flock. Cursed shall be you when you come in, and cursed shall be you when you go out. Lots of other things happening in these curses. Very disturbing things. Um, So, this is verse... um, 54, the man who is the most tender and refined among you will begrudge food to his brother, to the wife he embraces, and to the last of the children whom he has left, so that he will not give to them any of the flesh of his children whom he is eating, because he has nothing left in the siege and the distress. Part of the curse given is that the people of Israel would eat their own children. And that does happen. It's one of the things that happened in Israel. Um, It's disturbing. It's horrible. The horrific sins of the people just pile up towards the end. Um, So you think of what happens in times of immense distress. I listened to this podcast called Dan Carlin's Hardcore History. Dan Carlin is not a Christian, but he does a pretty good job of explaining things in history, and he actually, uh, to his credit, believes that the books of the Bible are at least historically accurate. And so he records these as what actually happened during these times. And his latest podcasts are very long, hours and hours long. And his latest podcast has been on World War II in the Pacific. Okay, And so we often hear about the European side of things. We hear very little about what happened in the Pacific. And one of the more disturbing things that happened is in these caves on these islands that we would go very towards the end that we were, you know, island hopping to get to Japan to overtake them to win the war in the, in the Pacific. And that these islands would be full of soldiers, but they'd also be full of men and, or of women and babies. And one of the, uh, 
recordings of the Japanese who were there in these caves hiding from the Americans. The Americans came and said, come out of the cave, we know you're in there. Um, And the Japanese soldiers ordered the mothers to kill their children because they were crying. And the mothers did it. And we think that we're so far removed from this thing that I just read about this thing. And war does things to us. It removes from us moral restraints that we didn't think could ever happen. You notice this curse says the most tender man will do this. So the man that you think is the, like, would never dream of being selfish, who is always the kind, gentle one, is the one doing this. And so I just want us to think long and hard about the things we, we think we would never be capable of, because what it does is it doesn't allow us to be humble before God. It doesn't give God credit when he says, you are capable of doing immense evil. And the Israelites did immense evil. Um, I'm going to skip down. And the Lord will scatter you. This is verse 64 of Deuteronomy 28. And the Lord will scatter you among all peoples from one end of the earth to the other. And there you will serve other gods of wood and stone, which neither you nor your fathers have known. And among these nations you shall find no respite, and there shall be no resting place for the sole of your foot. But the Lord will give you there a trembling heart and failing eyes and a languishing soul. Your life shall hang in doubt before you. Night and day you shall be in dread and have no assurance of your life. In the morning you shall say, if it were only evening. And at evening you shall say, if it were only morning, because of the dread that your heart shall feel and the sight that your eyes shall see. And the Lord will bring you back in ships to Egypt, a journey that I promised that you should not ever make again. And there you shall offer yourselves for sale to your enemies as male and female slaves. But there will be no buyer. The curse that came was this. Um, The reality is that back here at the end of Deuteronomy, this is hundreds of years before this, um, actually close to a thousand years before this happens. Moses says, this is going to happen if you don't obey. If you walk away from God, he will not just do these things to you, but he will give, yourself, give you over to all these awful sins. And that's exactly what happened. I'm not going to read all these things, uh, but it's important for us to at least look at the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah is... The book is the book, one of the books that Daniel was reading in captivity. So when all this came to fruition, when the people of Israel had so deserted the word of God and he had given them over to all these awful things, and then finally he brought the Babylonian captivity upon them, took them out of Israel, took them out of Judea, took them out of Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, sent some of them back to Egypt, like he said. Jeremiah was one of the ones who went back to Egypt Jeremiah was writing just before all this happened, okay, and then right at the beginning of the captivity. And this is what he says um, to the people of God. Um, The word that came to Jeremiah concerning all the people of Judah in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, That was the first year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. 
which Jeremiah the prophet spoke to all the people of Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. For 23 years, from the 13th year of Josiah the son of Ammon, king of Judah, to this day the word of the Lord has come to me, and I have spoken persistently to you, but you have not listened. You have neither listened nor inclined your ears to hear, although the Lord persistently sent to you all his servants and prophets, saying, Turn now, every one of you, from his evil way and evil deeds, and dwell upon the land that the Lord has given to you and your fathers from old and forever. Do not go after gods to serve and worship them, or provoke me to anger with the work of your hands. Then I will do, your ha- do you harm. And then I will do you no harm. Yet you have not listened to me, declares the Lord that you might provoke me to anger with the work of your hands to your own harm. And so then further down, uh, Moreover, I will banish from them the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the grinding of the millstones and the light of the lamp. This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon seventy years. Then, after seventy years are completed... I will punish the king of Babylon in that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, declares the Lord, making the land an everlasting waste. I will bring upon that land all the words that I have uttered against it, everything written in this book which Jeremiah prophesied against all the nations. For many nations and great kings shall make slaves even of them, and I will recompense them according to their deeds and the works of their hands. A couple of things. One, this was the word of the Lord given to the people of God in their land, and he had been preaching, he says, for 23 years, I've been telling you this, and you have not repented. And then he says, now Babylon will take you into captivity for 70 years. And at the end of 70 years, I will destroy Babylon. I will overtake it. It will be no more. A couple of notes about this. One, God always does what he says he's going to do. God always does what he says he will do. And so he promised that if you disobey, the very end, the last straw, will be deportation. And he does it. And then he also has uttered judgments against the pagan nations, against Babylon, against the Chaldeans, against the Medes and the Persians. And he has said, yes, I'm going to use you to discipline my people Israel, but you're not off the hook. Your deeds are evil and wicked. And after 70 years of you disciplining my people, I'm going to wipe you out. And so don't think that God treats pagan nations much differently than he treats his own nation, which is to say, all nations are judged by a holy God. They all get their recompense. There is none who escapes. There has never been a kingdom formed on this earth who has ever escaped the good justice of God. And we have seen that, some of you in your lifetimes, um, through things like World War I and World War II. Wicked nations, especially World War II. Wicked nations, crumbling, crumbling down. And then uh, the Soviet Union, in my lifetime, though very early in it, so that I barely remember it, crumbling down literally. The wall literally fell. And the Soviet Union was broken. 
That stuff happens all the time, and we think it's just political maneuverings of the United States and the U.K. against the USSR during the Cold War, and then it's all this political things bringing about devastations. But the reality is God is the one doing this all the time with nations. They are never without the judgment of God hovering just above them and at the proper time executing his justice against them. And so we can be assured of this, and this should be a comfort to us, that no matter how bad or how awful or how wicked a kingdom is, maybe it comes into power. Maybe it actually does. Maybe World War II went the other way, and Hitler actually did reside in power over a a vast kingdom of this earth. We could be assured, even then, that God would deal justly with that kingdom. And so no matter how bad things get, no matter who is our ruler, no matter how wicked our society is, we can have absolute confidence that vengeance belongs to the Lord. And that we, we are meant to be faithful in the midst of a land that is not our own. This is helpful to us to know these things, that God has never been surprised by another nation overtaking another one. He has never been caught off guard by the wickedness of a nation. And so for years and years and years, Israel had continued to go down this path. They had split the kingdom in half, the northern and the southern kingdoms. They had done wickedly in the northern kingdom beyond all compare. And then Judah, the faithful kingdom, Judah and Benjamin, also fell into terrible, wicked, awful pagan stuff. And so finally he had enough and he said, Babylon is coming. In 70 years, she will rule over you. But at the end of 70 years, I, I, the Lord, will come. Now that's what Daniel has known. It's what he read, okay? I'm going to read now from Daniel chapter 9. The first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent a Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books of the num- perceived in the books the number of years that, according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet, must pass before the end of the desolation of Jerusalem, namely, seventy years. So here's this man who is called by Ezekiel one of three holy men in the world. Ezekiel says, even if the three, Noah, Job and Daniel. Daniel is considered, Ezekiel is one of his contemporaries. He, he was contemporaneous with Daniel. Ezekiel, the prophet of God, looks at Daniel and says, there's, there's only been two other men that compare to this guy. Noah and Job. Daniel is a uniquely gifted man by God. Holy among his people. And he, even he, reads and submits to the word of God delivered by the prophets. And so we often, often, we would never say it like this. We would never say, I'm too good to read the Bible. I'm too good to find out what it says. But we also don't read the Bible and find out what it says. We don't actually take the time to actually look and read and think. And here's Jeremiah, one of the three godliest men of the entirety of the Old Testament history of God's people reading another prophet, 
Jeremiah and what he had to say. And Jeremiah said, this is the word of the Lord, 70 years. And Daniel reads it and says, this is the word of the Lord, 70 years. And he is inspired to do what? Pray. He finds out that God has promised to do something. He knows that God never stops fulfilling his word. He knows that God is always true. He knows that God never lies. So the 70 years was set. It was going to happen. So Daniel turns his face to God in prayer. Now, we, we have this conundrum in life. Um, we were talking about it yesterday morning at the elders' training. And I said it would be coming up in this sermon this morning. This is, this is a question that we have. If God is sovereign over everything, that in eternity past, everything that has ever come to pass was in the mind of God, that this event that we're reading about in 722 B.C., this event, the Babylonian captivity of Israel, God not only knew, but planned before Adam and Eve ever existed, before he ever said, let there be light. This morning, we're gathered here to hear from the word. This was all in the mind of God, assured, absolutely going to happen, without question. How can we think of that, which we know to be true, and then still pray because if it's going to happen if God has ordained all that has ever come to pass what do we have to do with anything and the response of God in scripture is this the assurance that God has ordered all things according to the counsel of his will establishes our prayers that if we did not know that God had ordered all things according to his mind, we could never rightly ask him for anything. Now think of this in a smaller way. We know people who have children, and their children never can figure out how to please them. The reason they can never figure out how to please them is because, I'm going to use the word schizophrenic, though they might not be actually schizophrenic, that the people sometimes are just so bonkers. They have no knowledge about what they're going to do one moment to the next, and their children grow up in a home like that, and they never know how to please their parents. If I say this, today, that might make dad happy. Tomorrow, if I say the same thing, dad might blow a gasket. They don't know how to live in the midst of a dad who is uncertain, wavering all the time, mad one minute, super happy the next, drunk the next second, That sort of family wreaks havoc on the children, and they never know how to please their father. Okay, now take that analogy and think of what it would be like if God had never told us anything about the fact that he has a plan and how difficult it would be for us to figure out how to be happy and how to please our father. We would never know. And this exists in the world. The God of Islam is that God. He is a God who is unknown and unknowable. Allah cannot be known or spoken of in any way that is helpful to the people. He is a God alone and aloof. And the people who worship him in Islam, they're told they have 
This is, if you've ever seen the cartoons with the two angels on the shoulder, just know that that's not a Christian thing, that's an Islamic thing. That's actually Islamic teaching. There's a good angel and a bad angel. And those good angels and bad angels record all your deeds. And then they report them to Allah when you die. And the idea is, they record all these things, and then you give them to Allah. And then he says, all right, you've done more good than bad. I suppose you can come with me to paradise. Except, except that's not actually true. Not only is that a, not a full picture of the Allah that Islam holds to, what happens is that's reported to God, and then at, the, at that moment of judgment, Allah can decide, yeah, I don't like you anyway, you're going to the hell. I, yeah, you had a lot of good deeds, but it doesn't matter, I don't like you. He's a fickle God. He cannot be known. The people of Islam never know how to please their God, which is why the writings of that religion are so convoluted. Do this and please God. Well, then three chapters later, do this and please God, and they contradict each other all the time. We do not have a God like that. Thanks be to God. We don't have a God like that. He is not fickle. He is unchangeable in his majesty and his glory. And his plans are fixed with a security that can make us say, Father, what can we do to please you? And he says, my son, I have told you. Here is how you may please me. God, what can, what can we do? Here, I have told you. Do this and I will be pleased. What can we do to not please you? Read. I will tell you the things that displease me. And we can be absolutely 100% totally sure that what he has said is true all the time. It never changes. It's without fail. And so there are things that we can absolutely pray to God that he will answer. We've talked about one of them multiple times in this book of 1 Timothy. And then in 1 Thessalonians at the first of this year. What is God's will for your life? Your sanctification. What is a prayer that you can always pray that God will always answer if you are a Christian? God, make me more holy. Help me to live a life that pleases you. God has said, my will for you is to live a holy life pleasing unto me. If you pray that, guaranteed God will answer you. He will make you more Christ-like if you ask him to. James 1. Ask God for wisdom and he will give you generously to all without any sort of, uh, you know, uh, strings attached. He is the giver of good gifts. If you ask God for wisdom as a Christian, he will give you wisdom. There are thousands of things like this all through Scripture that direct us how we might pray. And then, more specifically, here is a promise for you. In thinking about the God who has planned all things and knows all things, there is nothing that can happen aside from the power of His will. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, 
But be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Romans 12, 1-2. How do we know what to pray? Well, God says, if you ask anything in my name, I will do it. What does that mean, ask anything in my name? It means ask anything according to my will. If it's in my will that I have ordained since the foundations of the world, I will do it. How do we know what the will of God is? The renewing of our mind by the knowing of Scripture, by prayer and asking for wisdom, by pleading with God to give us Christ-like character, and he will give us his mind. He will let us know what his will is, and we will then be able to pray for it with great fervor. It will be just like Daniel who knew absolutely with full 100% confidence that God had said through Jeremiah, 70 years. And Daniel looks at his calendar, not a watch, but looks at his calendar, gets out his date book, flips back, and he goes, you know, we've been here like, hey, been here like 60-some years at this point. We're, we're, it's just about over. And then he begins to pray. He prays because he knows that he knows the will of God. That is our foundation for prayer. What leads us to pray? Knowing the mind of God. How do we know the mind of God? He gives it to us kindly in his word. He is not a fickle God who has given us some sort of changeability in him. He is unchanging and he is knowable. That is a gift beyond compare. And this is what it does for Daniel. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. I'm going to stop there. This is probably going to be the last part of Daniel 9 I'll read today. Unless time permits and God extends the hours backwards. Um, Here is the reality of what happens when you realize who God is. This this first part of Daniel's prayer, O Lord, the great and awesome God. It is a shame that, to my knowledge, having looked at 10 or 15 translations, that almost no modern translation translate that word, translates that word awesome as anything other than awesome. And unfortunately, today, the word awesome means what? Cool, good, really good, excellent. But that word awesome is actually the word dreadful, fearful, awful. That's what that word is. We've lost it in the last hundred years in English that awesome has come to mean like real cool, man. Awesome in this context, it's translated. There's about 250 instances of this word in the Old Testament. 250 of them. About 230 of them are translated fear. And about 20 of them awesome. And so if we're thinking about God as he truly is, God who ordains all things. 
And think about what he had ordained in the case of Daniel. Seventy years in a desolate place because of the wickedness of their sin, a place that was not their home, a place where they starved and they were cast aside and they were castigated as a people. When Daniel says, great and awesome, great and dreadful are you, O Lord, he means you are terrifying in your judgments. That's what he's saying. And this is a common theme in Scripture. When we get to know who God is and the power that he possesses, that he holds life and death in his hands, and more than that, right, more than just physical life and death, Jesus reminds us, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. When we get a right picture of who God is, it is absolutely terrifying. Because God has every right, every right to cast every one of us into his hell. And so what then can be our response? Well, I'm going to read a little bit from James for just a moment. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord. That's, that's what introduction to the holy God of all creation is. Absolute undoing of ourselves. And thankfully, that is not the last word of God to his people. He has always been a fearful God to his people, but he has also always said this. This is the end of that verse in James. And he will exalt you. And this is the end of the thought in Daniel, the great and dreadful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Here is the reality. Here is the final answer. We stand before a holy God without anything to cover us. And it is terrifying. And there is only one answer to that problem. And it's the grace of God in the face of the Son, Jesus Christ. And even there, with the Son covering us, we stand in dreadful awe of the God who holds it all, who has declared the end from the beginning, who has never had a misstep or a misdeed. And so instead of thinking, where does our uh, ability to pray come from in the, in the in the midst of this it's this is the only place that we have any right to approach God it's from utter humility that we have nothing to stand on because God is so powerful he orders everything according to the counsel of his will and when we humble ourselves in that way before the great and dreadful God of all the universe he exalts us 
This is Psalm 2. Kiss the son lest he be angry with you. The humility that we must have as Christians, the humility that Daniel shows in the face of knowing God's righteous judgment is the same for us as it was for him. We stand in the midst of much wickedness in our country. And when I say our country, I don't mean necessarily our political states. I mean our Christian country. The the fact that we are a, a nation made up of many people who claim the name of God, who have abandoned his law, who do not do the things that please him. We cannot do this forever without God saying to our churches in our land, enough. Desolation is coming. You have abandoned me, and I will leave you abandoned for a time so that you will know that I am a great and dreadful God. I don't know what the coming years will have for us. It could be that God would redeem us now. I do know that for a decade, I have spoken with pastor friends of mine that do not think that that day is now, that do think that a day of barrenness is coming for our churches, because we have read the history of the churches in the West, and it is not good. Pastor after pastor, leader after leader, have taken us down paths that are wicked and abominable. And our duty as Christians is to humble ourselves before the mighty hand of God and intercede for God's love and mercy because we have done wickedly. And we're going to get into more of that next week. Um, But I want you to think this week. We pray each week a confessional prayer together. We confess our sins as one body. But we tend not to think of our confession of sins as broader than anything that we know. That can we actually confess sin of a broad range of things that the church, our people, connected to us by the spiritual head who is Christ, have done? So can we connect the church down the road and down in the next town and across the state and across state lines and across this country and really across the whole Western world? We're all linked together. We're all linked together because we have one head, Jesus Christ. We are all, in fact, part of one huge body. And that one huge body has committed unbelievable acts of transgression. We are often aware of our own personal sin, what we do on a day-to-day basis. The things we say, the things we think, the things we do, the things we don't say, the things we don't think, the things we don't do. And sometimes we're aware enough of our own congregation to know that our congregation has done things. And sometimes we're aware enough of our own town to know that our town and the churches that are here have done things. And sometimes we're aware enough of denominational sins. And sometimes we get a little bit broader than that, but rarely do we have the kind of faith that Daniel shows here. Daniel begins confessing this man of God who is likened to Job and Noah, this man of God, his next words after the great and dreadful God who keeps love, we have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled. We have not listened. To us is open shame. To us, O Lord, belongs shame. We have rebelled. 
All Israel has transgressed. Over and over in this prayer. We, we, us, us, all, all, all. It's a difficult thing to own the sins that we didn't directly commit. But this is the way God helps nations and Christians broadly come back to him. Is to say, God, we, we have done these things. I speak a lot of times in this sort of way. And I know it ruffles our feathers. Um, but the confessions of the body together, to say, we, we, us, bring us in a humble state to God to say, I'm not better than those people, and I deserve just as much your wrath. But you have been merciful to me. Be merciful to us. Forgive their sins and forgive mine. All together, we as one. We, we, we. This week, I want you to think about that. I want you to think what it means to come face to face with the holy God of Scripture. What it means to meet your sin with mourning what it means when God is a dreadful God. And what it means that God has saved us. He has saved us despite this. Every right he has. Every right he has. And yet, somehow, some way, he says, Mercy. 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 Have we begun to feel it or know it? Have I begun to feel it or know it? Have you begun to feel it or know it? Let us not be so prideful that we don't think this sort of thing could happen, not happen again. God will not be tested. He will not endure sin forever. Let us be real about our sins. So that we can have an actual Savior who saves us from real justice. Real judgment. We do have a real Savior. He really does save us from real judgment. And endured on that cross. All the wrath of God for us who believe. And that is an immense thing. So let's be mindful this week. Let's not think that Israel is so different from us. Let's also not think it's the other guy's fault that these things are happening. And let's begin to think that perhaps we have things to repent of. Let's pray this morning and then we'll sing our final hymn. Father, thank you so much for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your son. And Father, we are humbled in your 